Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for the time we've had thus far together. And Lord, now as we come to your word, we pray that you would speak to us, your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Please have a seat. Since 1972, the University of Chicago in the United States has conducted what is called the Happiness Project. And so for the last 50 years, researchers at the University of Chicago have done a nationwide research project in the states to determine how happy people are. And there are various uh, filters they use, and people self-identify their level of happiness. And the most recent one, pre-COVID, in the United States, 14% of the people self-identified as happy. Now think about that. Uh, In the wealthiest, most prosperous nation in the world, only 14% of men and women said, I am happy. And it's a staggering thought. And and we see it played out in in our culture and in our society. In fact, America has been in the midst of a pandemic for the last five years. But it's something more sinister and more devastating than COVID. It's an opioid pandemic. And right now in America, every year, over 100,000 people die of opioid overdose. Over 100,000 people. And we see men and women who are striving and who are searching for any way to find contentment and happiness. Don't answer out loud, but I wonder if if I asked you this morning, how would you rate yourself on a happiness scale? I mean, what would it look like for you if, if someone just said, you know what, on just an average day, in fact, tomorrow is Monday, sorry for reminding you, but, but tomorrow is Monday morning, and, and whatever it is you do on Monday, and you get up and go do it, what does your happiness level look like? Uh, we started two weeks ago studying a letter in the Bible, and it's called Philippians, and it's a letter by a man named Paul. <laughs> And, and Paul was a man who God had called to, to go around and start churches and to help people know and love and follow Jesus. And so Paul writes letters to the churches to encourage them, instruct them, and help them. And in this letter, it's called Philippians because that was the name of a, a town called Philippi. And Paul is writing a letter to this little church in this town and in we, we mentioned this last time. It's, it's a very brief letter. It's very short. And yet the word joy is used over 19 times in this small letter. This small letter, the, the word joy, is used 19 times. And, and we're going to talk about for a few moments uh, this morning, how can you and I find real, meaningful, enduring joy? What is it? And what does it look like? And so uh, I want to encourage you to uh, open your Bible to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Now there are Bibles on your table. And if you're using a Bible on your table, it's page 1178. So 1178. If you'll uh, turn there, and I'll give you just a moment to do that. Uh, And so we're going to pick up right where we left off last time. We're just going verse by verse uh, through this letter together. So Philippians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 12. 
and verse 12, page 1178. And uh, let's look at it together. Just follow along there in, uh, in the Bible as I, as I read for us. And so Paul is writing this to these Christians in this small church. This is what Paul writes. He says, now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, let's pause. What has happened to him? That's important to know. Paul is in prison, all right? And so he's writing this letter from a jail cell. He's in prison. Um, And so this is the context. He's been imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Uh, He's upset the Romans. He's upset the establishment. Um, shocking to think that governments were corrupt back then, and, uh, and he's upset a lot of people, so they've stuck him in prison. So he's writing a letter. That's the context, all right? So here we go again, verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, being put in prison, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Now, the latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is, is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yet, and I will continue to rejoice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray now for these next few moments as we read your word, uh, we pray that you would open our minds and give us understanding by your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, that we might be changed by your word. And Lord, we pray that you would just teach us how we can experience real and lasting joy in the midst of a crazy world. We ask in Jesus' name. Paul uh, is celebrating what God is doing as he's in prison. He's, he's going to talk about joy, and I think it's important to appreciate this. Um, I want to show you a picture of where he was being held. So uh, my wife and my daughter, who are not with us today, but uh, a couple of years ago for Kayla's uh, 16th birthday, they did a girl's trip to Rome and met with some other moms and daughters. And while they were there, they went to visit Uh, where Paul was in prison, where he wrote this letter. And this is a picture of it. And so uh, I I want you to understand where he is, because it's not a prison in the sense of a modern concept. It it might be a bit hard to see, but it's essentially, think of a basement. Um, In fact, when we have food downstairs, if you want to, we can show you, there's actually a basement in this building, and it's not quite this nice. Um, and, And this is where Paul is. And so I want you to notice something, that there's only one source of natural light. There are no windows. There's literally a hole where light comes through. It also means when it rains, all the water comes through that hole. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't want to be too graphic, but there's no toilet. There's no chairs. There's no tables. 
This is a basement in a house that is dank and dark and filthy, and he is chained to the floor with one arm, chained to a soldier with the other, and he's able to write a letter, and living in this condition, he says, I am filled with joy. Are you with me? In this place, for two years, two years he's going to be in this place, and he's going to write, and he's going to tell the church, I'm filled with joy. I'm filled with happiness. And I'll just be honest, that's not my first thought when I think about being locked up in here. Amen? Uh, That's not, I mean, mm, that's not the holiday I booked, right? Like, I've been to some bad hotels, but Travel Lodge is not that bad, right? And like, this is where this man is telling you and I to rejoice always. Yet again, I say, rejoice. How can he write that? How in the midst of this circumstance can this man say, my joy is complete? Um, Well, uh, part of it is how we understand joy. Um, The word joy here in Philippians, um, it means this. and It's very different from happiness. Uh, This is what Dan was sharing in his testimony. Dan was saying, uh, I was looking for joy, but I was only finding happiness, and happiness was temporary. Happiness only lasted until the the alcohol wore off, and then the emptiness was still there, right? Happiness is like pouring something in a cup, but there's a hole in the bottom, right? It it just goes in, but then it comes right out. That's happiness. Joy is something that stays inside. So look at this definition with me. This is the biblical definition of joy. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, which provides a Christian with inner contentment and satisfaction, regardless of external circumstances. It flows from a complete trust that God is in control, working all things for his glory and my good. It's a bit of a long definition, so let's look at it again. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Paul's going to write another letter to a church in Galatia called the the letter to the Galatians. And he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. In other words, stay with me. Joy is not something we're born with. Joy is not naturally in us. Joy is something that has to be placed into us. Have you ever met someone who's always restless? Have you ever met someone who's maybe always negative? They always just see the kind of downside of life. What we find is this, is is that joy is not something we're born with, but it's something that God must place in us, all right? So it is a fruit of the Holy Spirit which provides a Christian. This joy that Paul is talking about is exclusive to those who love and follow Jesus. He says a fruit of the Holy Spirit which provides a Christian with inner contentment and satisfaction. He's going to talk later in the letter about what it means to be content. What it means to be content. We, we live in a culture, we live in a world of discontentment. Discontentment. Um, we, we, we think, well, if I just get the... I'll tell you what amazes me. I don't even know what number the iPhone is in right now. Um, and, and I'm not condemning you if you know that. That's awesome. But I hope you didn't sleep outside the store to get it. If you did, man, you're committed. Good for you, right? But like, we're uh, even like TV adverts 
are made to make us feel discontent, right? Like, you know, I, I just got the Apple 17, and but, but wait, there's an 18, right? Is it up to 18, by the way? Y'all are acting like you don't even know what an iPhone is now, like you're feeling all guilty. It, it, I don't mean it that way. I just mean we, like adverts, like the new cars, it's always about newer, shinier, faster, bigger, better. And as soon as we get that, a week later, there's a new advert for the updated model. And we live in a culture that intentionally attempts to create dissatisfaction among us, right? And if we're not careful, even as people who know and love Jesus, we can kind of latch on to that a bit. We can, we can kind of be reeled in just a bit on that. And, and Paul says here, no, no, joy is not something about having the newest or the latest or the best, but it's an inner contentment. It comes from the inside out, and it's a satisfaction. Remember, the, uh, my wife and I, this was many years ago uh, in the late 90s, we went and, and spent time in South Africa, and we were there right after apartheid ended, and it was a partnership that was arranged, and we went and uh, it took us about three days to get to our final destination. We were out in the middle of nowhere, and we lived with a Zulu family. They had never met us. We had never met them. And, uh, and now we're living with the Zulu family. And, and we spent time with them and spent time teaching in their church. No one owned a car. Um, everyone walked to church. Some people walked four and five miles to come to church. Uh, there were no doctors in the town. There was no, well, nobody had internet back then. It didn't exist. Um, they, they, they didn't have a television. They didn't have heat in their home. They had absolutely nothing. And what I'll never forget was that their joy far outseated mine. I remember on the flight back, and it was a long flight, it was about 18 hours. I just remember trying to come to terms with that because I was going back to this really nice big house and two cars and a great job and all those things, and yet these people who had nothing had a greater joy than I did. And it's because I realized for me a lot of my joy came from the outside in, and for them because they had nothing, it had to come from the inside out. And that's lasting joy. It says it flows from a complete trust that God is in control even when I'm in prison. He's always working for his glory. It's not about where my location is. It's not about what I have. But Paul says it's something God gives us, and it flows from the inside out. All right, let's very quickly then look. What does this look like for you and I in the midst of difficult circumstances which Paul was in? And we'll just see four simple things this morning. Number one, we see this, that in the midst of my difficult circumstances, God always has a plan. In the midst of my difficult circumstances, God always has a plan. Keep, keep that image of, of the prison cell. Keep that image in your mind. And even there, Paul acknowledges that God has a plan. He says this in verse 12. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Paul says, look, God had a bigger plan. Um, I've, uh, this is I'm reading through the Bible, something I try to do every year, and so just started again and was just in the story of Joseph last night. And if you're familiar with that story, you'll remember that, that when he was a teenager, his, his brothers uh, maliciously turned on him, and they were going to kill him the last minute. They, they relented from killing him, but they threw him in a well, then they sold him into slavery. 
and he, and he was sent to Egypt to a foreign land, and you know uh, he didn't speak the language, he didn't know the culture, and now he shows up in this foreign country where he doesn't understand what anyone is doing or saying, and he's now a slave there, and he goes on to become the second most powerful man in Egypt. He saves millions of people. His brothers then come, and he tells his brothers this, what you meant for evil, God meant for What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Here's what Joseph said, and here's what Paul says. Listen, God always has a plan. God always has a plan. Don't forget that. Like God, Monday morning's already happened to him. He already knows what's going to happen at work this week. He already knows the struggles and challenges that you face. He's already there working for his glory and for your good. And he always, always has a plan. And so we see here, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, that what has happened has actually served to advance the gospel. In other words, uh, the Romans thought if we lock Paul up in this basement, then no one else will learn about Jesus. And Paul says that was your plan, uh, but God had a bigger plan and the gospel is going forward. Uh, look at look at your Bible and look what he says here. Uh, at verse, look at verse 13. He says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard that the gospel is advancing. This word advance uh, in, in the Greek, which is the Bible was originally written in this part, it means to, to make beneficial progress. It doesn't mean simply to move forward, but it means to move forward and make results. He says the gospel's not just moving forward, but it's making results. And so just be encouraged that in in the midst of difficult circumstances, God has a plan. God has a plan for COVID. God has a plan through everything we've been through the last two years. God is at work, and we take comfort in that. And it leads to our second truth, and it's this. In the midst of my difficult circumstances, here's what the plan is, right? If God has a plan, what's the plan? Well, here it is. Uh, In the midst of my difficult circumstances, God's plan is to proclaim his gospel to unbelievers. To proclaim his gospel to unbelievers. Look what he says at verse 13. He says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Uh, So God always has a plan. What is his plan? Well, uh, his plan is to proclaim the good news about Jesus to those who don't know him. So what's the situation with this palace guard? Um, so where Paul is locked up is in a house. The house I showed you a picture of the basement, but the rest of the house is still there. And living in the house would have been high-ranking Roman families. And they've locked Paul up down in the basement. And so guards have to take turns staying with Paul. Now, the guards who protected the Roman emperor were special. Think of kind of the the secret service. I mean, those who guard a president or a prime minister, that is a special position. Uh, The praetorium, the palace guard, there were about 9,000 of these soldiers. And their specific job was to protect the highest ranking Roman officials, right? Now, look what Paul says He says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Uh, Think about this. Uh, He says, 
that, that because of this situation, uh, and this is what most scholars think, because this is how it tends to work out in Paul's life, every person for two years who had to work a shift guarding Paul, what do you think Paul talked to him about? Yeah, he didn't talk about cricket because nobody understands it. Amen? <laughs> right? He didn't talk about the weather. What did Paul talk about? Paul talked about Jesus. And for two years, every palace guard, every elite secret service agent who was chained to Paul heard the gospel for two years. And you can guarantee they shared and they shared. There's some scholars who believe that it might have reached as high as to Caesar himself. And for two years, the gospel, like a virus, spreads throughout this elite group of soldiers. And Paul says this, don't miss this. It never would have happened if I wasn't locked up in this prison. If I wasn't locked up in this prison, none of them would have ever heard about Jesus. See, Paul had a different way of of processing. Uh, And so for you and I, in the midst of our difficult circumstances, in the midst of our challenges, man, let's, let's seize an opportunity. So you know what? I didn't plan on this. I didn't prepare for this. But Lord, how can I use this opportunity to share the hope and love of Jesus with others? In the midst of difficult circumstances, uh, God's plan is to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers. He tells us a second part of, uh, of God's plan. It's this, in the midst of my difficult circumstances, God's plan is to encourage and strengthen believers. God's plan is not only to tell those who don't know about Jesus about Jesus, but he says it's to encourage other believers. And he says this in verse 14. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul says, my situation, uh, God has used it to proclaim the gospel to probably thousands, but God has also used it to encourage other brothers and sisters. Uh, There's something really encouraging about seeing a a brother or sister, another Christian, go through a difficult time and and trust the Lord in it. It it, it brings confidence, does it not? It, it, It brings peace. It brings confidence when we see someone who we know they're going through a hard time, and and God uses it to bring confidence. If you just turn that off, Ben, that would probably be less distracting. Okay, let's let's stop and pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for this, and we pray, Lord, you fix it, and it wouldn't be a distraction. Uh, Lord, we know the enemy would seek to work in that way, and so we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. uh, what we see here is that there's an opportunity as we see others go through difficult times to be encouraged. Um, I've got a, uh, my wife and I have a good, some good friends, Michael and Beth, and uh, they're a little bit younger than us. They're, they're in their mid-40s. And um, about six years ago, completely unexpected, she's a nurse and uh, just full of life. And, uh, and Beth wasn't feeling real good. She'd been having some headaches. She went, and uh, we got a message from her, said, um, I have a brain tumor. I have a brain tumor, and it's inoperable. Nothing they can do about it. And uh, they had two small kids, and we were absolutely devastated, absolutely devastated. And we began to walk on a journey with their family as, 
as they began to have chemotherapy and radiation and all the things for this brain tumor. And, and uh, after about three or four months, uh, Beth slipped into a coma. I gathered the family together and said, you know, this probably could be it. There's nothing else we can do. And so as you might imagine, there were a lot of tears and there was a lot of heartache. And um, uh, we prayed and prepared for the Lord to, uh, to take her uh, to heaven. And, uh, and I was talking to Michael, her husband, and we, we were here in England. And we were talking on the phone and we're both crying. And, um, and uh, Michael says, would you, would you pray? Because Beth had a very specific prayer request before she slipped into a coma. And it's the last thing she wanted me to pray for. And I said, absolutely. What is it? And, um, and so I'm imagining it's going to be pray for our kids or, you know, pray for me, pray for our family. And uh, he's crying. And Michael says, Beth said, would you pray that she'll come out of the coma at least for a short time? Because there's a nurse here in the hospital she's been sharing the gospel with. and She wants one more opportunity to share the gospel with her before she dies. And I, I just, just began to weep. And, and I just, we prayed that. And the Lord answered it. And about a month later, she came out of the coma. And the first thing she said coming out of the coma was, where's Michelle? That was the nurse. And Beth was able to share the gospel with her again. Now, her walk and her faith in the midst of that brought encouragement and, and, and strengthened me and my faith in ways that nothing else ever could. There's something about watching a brother and sister go through difficult circumstances and watching them go through it with tears and with heartache, but with the grace of God that brings encouragement to his people. And so Paul says, in the midst of difficult circumstances, God's plan is to encourage and to strengthen one another. Uh, he uses the word there, confident. It means to instill trust and assurance. To instill trust and assurance. Paul says, listen, the way God is working in this prison cell, I want it to work in your life in a way that it makes you trust Jesus more. Trust Jesus more. Now, I'm, I just have a confession. Um, I can throw an amazing first-class pity party. Have any of you ever been to one? You've never been to one of mine because I'm the only person that gets invited. But have you ever had your own? Oh, y'all some lying folks. Yes, you have, right? Like, it is easy to have a pity party, isn't it? Like, it's easy to have kind of a like, you know, woe is me, right? Like, I mean, it's just, that's my woe is me song. You want to keep going? I need a banjo. Like, it's just, you know, you can sing the blues, and my life is horrible, and everything's bad, and I'm so good at doing that. Like, I'm so good. Like, I went, uh, so Max and I, it's just the two of us, Christy and Kayla in the States right now. We've been just making it for a couple weeks now, and uh, uh, sometimes we have food, and sometimes we don't. And um, I just assumed it magically appeared, but apparently... Christy goes to a place called the grocery store, and you buy food. And Max and I are learning all this. And so I went to get a snack the other night, and I thought, you know what I would fancy? A nice bowl of cereal, right? And, uh, and I go, there was no milk. And I just went and sat down and thought, Lord, my life is so hard. Why is there no milk? But Lord, help me be brave. 
Lord, if you would send a cow, I'll milk it. Are you with me? Sometimes the, the smallest things can flip my whole life upside down. So what I miss is, I miss the opportunity to encourage others, to proclaim the gospel. Paul never had a pity party in that jail cell. But Paul was always thinking, how can I encourage others how can I help others, even from a prison cell? Uh, it brings us to our last thing, and it's this, number four. In the midst of my difficult circumstances, God's plan will work for his glory and my good. God always has a plan. His plan is to proclaim the gospel to those who don't know Jesus. His, his plan is to encourage people and strengthen those who do know Jesus. And then here's our big bookend, and it's this, that God's plan will always work for his glory and for our good. Uh, he says this in, uh, in verses 15 through 18. He says, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Paul says, there's, there's people doing stuff in here to help me. There's people in here doing stuff to hurt me. But you know what? At the end of the day, I'm not bothered. As long as Jesus is glorified, that's all I care about. Paul says, there's some people who are trying to discredit me and harm me and mock me. There are others who really want to help me, but I'm really not bothered. As long as Jesus is lifted up. Because of this, I rejoice. In the midst of my difficult circumstances, God is always working for his glory and my good. But here's what that takes. It takes for me to have a level of intentionality where I choose to view my circumstances in that way. Where I choose to view my circumstances in that way. Uh, The reality is this, that joy is a choice. Joy is a choice. And I'll either choose to have joy as a fruit of the Spirit, or I'll choose not to have joy. But it's a choice only I can make for myself. It's a choice. And so when there's no milk in the fridge, when COVID hits, when cancer shows up, when I lose my job, whatever the difficult circumstance is, in that moment, I have to make a choice. And I can choose to have a pity party. I can choose to complain. I can choose to grumble. I can choose to do all those things. Or I can choose joy. And listen carefully. I'm not talking about some pie in the sky ignoring my problems. That's not what joy is. Joy is not the absence of a storm. Uh, Joy is walking with Jesus in the midst of the storm. Let me say that again. Uh, Joy is not the absence of a storm, but joy is walking with Jesus in the midst of the storm. Uh, There's an old country song Uh, Some of you might be old enough to remember if it made it this far. Uh, A woman sings this. She says, I beg your pardon to her uh, boyfriend. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a... Listen to you country music fans. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. The reality is, even for people who know and love Jesus, life is not always a rose garden. There's still storms, there's still challenges, there's still heartaches and heartbreaks, but here's the difference. The difference is Jesus is with us every step of the way, amen?
every step of the way. You might know of the true story where uh, Jesus, his disciples were out on a boat and Jesus was in the boat with them. And the Bible says that a massive storm came up and the waves were crashing into the boat so large that the disciples were afraid the boat was going to sink. So they go and wake up Jesus. Jesus is sleeping through this. The Bible says that Jesus stands up and he speaks to the wind and the waves and he says, peace, be still. The Bible says that the wind quits blowing, the waves cease and all is calm. The disciples worship him and they say, who is this man who even the wind and waves obey? The joy is having Jesus in the boat. Life will be tough. Life will be difficult, but when Jesus is in the boat, it makes all the difference. Uh, I have one sister, and that's plenty for me, and, uh, and uh, we're, we're best of friends. We're uh, same birthday, five years apart, very close. And, uh, and my sister was the first, she got married before me and uh, got pregnant. It's hard to say before me, but I've never been pregnant. So yeah, she still got pregnant before me. And... And uh, we're so excited, like first grandbabies, first nieces and nephews, all those things. We're so, so excited. And so then we find out my sister is pregnant with twins. And now we're just like over the moon. We're so excited. And so we're coming up with names and, you know, all of the fun things we're going to do with twins and like, you know, how we're going to tell them apart. Like we're just, we're having so much fun. And, uh, and so we lived about five hours apart and... Uh, phone call, uh, phone rings one night, and I answer, it's my sister, and uh, she's in tears. I'm like, oh, Debbie, what's going on? She said, well, I'm, I'm at the hospital. What's, what's happening? Is everything all right? She said, well, she's crying, and she says, we've just found out that, that one of the babies has died. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. She says, and we found out that the baby, the twin who's died, that her umbilical cord has got wrapped up over the other baby. Yeah. So, well, everywhere that the umbilical cord got wrapped, the other babies quit growing. I said, okay, well, what's, what's that mean? I, I don't understand. I said, well, he's only going to have one leg, no fingers. Okay, well... Getting it, I'm getting in the car. I got in the car, drove the five hours straight to the hospital. And we began to walk this journey together, and we prayed and cried out to the Lord, change this. Lord, why us? Like, we've tried to be good people. Like, is, are you punishing us? Like, all those things that go through your mind, right? Like, Lord, why, why is this happening? And... And Hannah was born, Hannah Grace O'Brien. She was born just as the doctor said. One of her legs stops right below the knee. She has no fingers, just two thumbs. And she's amazing. She's now 22, has graduated university, has too many boyfriends, and she's beautiful, and I love her. It didn't work out the way I would have wrote the story. It wasn't the happy ending that I wanted. But what we experienced was this, that 
goodness and the joy and the peace of Jesus every step of the way. And it's a bit like falling in love. Can't explain it unless you've experienced it. But you know it when it's there. A joy that comes from the inside out. Knowing that in the deepest, darkest of valleys, in the biggest of storms, Jesus is with us. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that in the midst of difficult circumstances, that you always have a plan. That your plan, Jesus, is that unbelievers would hear the gospel. For two years, every soldier heard the gospel. Jesus, we thank you that your plan is that um, believers would be encouraged and strengthened as they see our journey. And Jesus, we thank you that in the midst of difficult circumstances, your plan works in a way that you are always working for your glory and for our good. Lord, maybe there's someone here this morning and they're in the midst of a storm. They're in the midst of a deep, dark valley. In their personal life, in their marriage, in their job, whatever it might be, Lord, they have come to this place this morning with heartache and hardship. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have a perfect plan for them. Lord, I pray that they would know your peace, that they would know your grace in the midst of their struggle. As we saw at the beginning, we know this peace, Jesus, by knowing you. You are the Prince of Peace. Joy is something we receive from you. And so, Jesus, I pray for anyone who's here this morning and that they don't know you in a personal way and Jesus, I pray that today they would know that um, they can come to you, Jesus, and find forgiveness and find peace and find joy and find all the things that the world around us is searching and striving for. Jesus, would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us? Would you bless us for your glory, for our good we pray in Jesus?